It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Traveling from Pittsburgh to the Pacific Ocean wasn't easy, especially when you were doing it in a dugout canoe. On the 9th of June 27th, 1805, the men of Lewis and Clark's Corps of Discovery rested their tired bodies along the banks of the Missouri River. It was a welcome respite after a long day of traveling. The sleeping men were so exhausted that they had no idea an intruder was in their midst. Under the cover of darkness, a grizzly bear came into camp, lured by bison meat that had been hung up to dry. If it decided it wanted to snack on some humans, there would be no stopping it. Unaware of the looming danger, the explorers continued to doze. However, one member of the expedition was alert and awake. As the grizzly ate its fill, a black streak emerged from the night, furiously barking. It was Meriwether Lewis's dog, Seaman. The sudden commotion woke the men and they scrambled for their weapons. But there was no need. Despite weighing 10 times less than the grizzly, Seaman refused to back down. After a tense standoff, the bear decided the dog wasn't worth the effort and trundled back into the darkness. Once the danger had passed, Seaman relaxed and curled up next to his master. But he had to remain alert. The expedition still had thousands of miles to go, and it was up to Seaman to keep them safe. Welcome to Dog Tales, a podcast original. Every week, we tell the stories of historic, heroic canines. We'll profile dogs who saved people from earthquakes, went to outer space, and even spurred the invention of Velcro. If you're looking for fun stories and a warm heart, you're barking up the right tree. I'm your host, Alastair. You can find episodes of Dog Tales and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dog Tales for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dog Tales in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This week, we're telling the story of Seaman, the dog that accompanied Lewis and Clark's famous expedition to the Pacific Ocean from May 1804 to September 1806. Along the way, he proved to be a dependable, loyal, and loving friend. <laughs> <laughs> 
Meriwether Lewis paced impatiently along the Pittsburgh Wharf. It was August of 1803, and time was running short. A month before, President Thomas Jefferson had announced the purchase of the Louisiana Territory. In the stroke of a pen, he expanded the United States by some 828,000 square miles. And now, he needed someone to chart it. To that end, Jefferson enlisted his private secretary, 29-year-old Meriwether Lewis, to lead the expedition. Although the term private secretary may elicit the image of a meek, mild-mannered man, Meriwether Lewis was a respected army captain who helped quell the 1794 Whiskey Rebellion. He was more than qualified to lead this adventure. But such a tall task couldn't be accomplished alone. Lewis wanted a partner to help him lead the team, which he called the Corps of Discovery. Enter William Clark. Like Lewis, 33-year-old Clark was a proven military commander. Together, the two of them were a formidable team. So formidable, they were given a second task. In addition to exploring the land from the Louisiana Purchase, Jefferson wanted Lewis and Clark to search for the fabled Northwest Passage, which supposedly connected the American continent in a single waterway. Finding it would be a boon for the young nation. While Clark recruited additional crew for the expedition, Lewis headed to Pittsburgh to have boats built. In a troubling sign of what was to come, the plan immediately hit a snag. The shipbuilder had promised Lewis that the boats would be ready by July 20th. But when Lewis arrived, they were still under construction. However, the delay came with a silver lining. It allowed Lewis to add an extremely valuable member to the team. At some point in August 1803, Lewis bought a young Newfoundland dog. On the surface, the massive shaggy pup wouldn't seem all that useful for Lewis's mostly waterbound journey. But in reality, Newfoundlands are the best water dogs around. Weighing up to 150 pounds, Newfoundlands are extremely powerful swimmers. Most canines dog paddle with their paws in front of their faces. But Newfoundlands keep their legs under them when they swim, creating a breaststroke-like effect. Their webbed toes help them move through the water with ease, and their water-resistant coats keep them warm and dry. Considering the breed's aquatic prowess, it's no surprise that Meriwether Lewis named his new companion Seaman. The 55-foot supply boat and two smaller transport boats were finally ready in late August. With Seaman in tow, Lewis and some hired hands finally cast off from Pittsburgh on August 31, 1803. They would rendezvous with Clark and the rest of the Corps of Discovery further down the Ohio River. The water was low that year. The men had to frequently get out and lift the boats when they ran aground. It was grueling, unpleasant work. But Seaman, standing guard on the 55-foot supply boat's prow, was there to lift their spirits. And although he wasn't pulling the boat, he provided another valuable service, hunting. A little over a week after setting out, Seaman spotted a pack of squirrels swimming across the river. Without a moment's hesitation, he leaped into the water and chased after them. That night, 
Lewis and his hungry men had all the squirrel they could eat. It was a welcome feast after an exhausting 26-mile day. And apparently, very tasty. Writing in his journal, Lewis remarked the squirrels were a pleasant food. After a month and a half of travel, Lewis rendezvoused with Clark in the Indiana Territory. Along with the 40-odd men Clark had recruited, they resumed their journey down the Ohio River in mid-October. A month later, they reached its terminus on the Mississippi River in what is modern-day Missouri. From there, the plan was to travel up the Mississippi to St. Louis, where they would spend the winter. When spring arrived, they would take the Missouri River into the Louisiana Territory's uncharted lands. On November 16th, two days into their journey up the Mississippi, Lewis, Clark, and a few of their men stopped to explore the woods along the banks. Seaman came with them. By now, he was a constant fixture by his master's side. During their explorations, the group encountered a settlement of the native Shawnee people. The Shawnee were understandably wary, but relaxed once Lewis and Clark made their peaceful intentions known. As the two sides bartered goods, one of the Shawnee became particularly interested in seamen. The Newfoundland must have been quite the sight. With his massive frame and shaggy black coat, he probably looked more like a bear than a dog. Seaman was so impressive that the Shawnee offered to buy him from Lewis in exchange for three beaver pelts. The American explorer immediately turned him down. Financially, it was a non-starter. Although it's difficult to gauge the exact value of a beaver pelt at the time, a passage from the 1837 Oregon Historical Society Quarterly set it at around $2, or about $50 today. Lewis had bought Seaman for $20. He would have been worth about 10 beaver pelts. But for Meriwether Lewis, the deal wasn't about money. In his journal entry from that day, he talked about how he prized Seaman for his docility. Clearly, Lewis had formed a bond with his dog. It wouldn't have mattered how many beaver pelts the Shawnee offered. Lewis wasn't letting Seaman go. After their encounter with the Shawnee, the Corps of Discovery resumed their journey to St. Louis, arriving in early December 1803. Over the winter, Clark trained the men for the hard road ahead, while Lewis and Seaman attended to matters in the city. Poring over whatever maps and charts he could find, he planned to have the expedition reach North Dakota before the next winter, nearly a thousand miles away. On May 21st, 1804, the weather was finally mild enough to resume traveling. The journey would be arduous, and to get there safely, seamen would have to do a lot more than catch a few squirrels. Coming up, seamen and the Corps of Discovery continue their expedition to the Pacific Ocean. Now, back to the story. On May 21st, 1804, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark left St. Louis and began their long trek up the Missouri River. As St. Louis receded into the distance, the men of the Corps of Discovery must have been nervous. They were leaving the last vestiges of American civilization behind. From then on, they were on their own. 
but Lewis's loyal dog, Seaman, showed no fear. Like on their journey down the Ohio River, Seaman's hunting abilities provided a boost to the men when the going got tough. July 5th was a particularly hard day. The night before, the Corps had celebrated Independence Day with extra whiskey rations. Tired and probably hungover from the late night, the 5th was an exhausting slog over sandbars and other obstacles. But Seaman was still brimming with energy. When the boats pulled ashore for the night, the big black Newfoundland spotted a beaver lodge. Just as when he hunted the squirrels on the Ohio, Seaman leaped into the river without complaint. Showing off his breed's surprising athleticism, Seaman dove down into the water and scared out several beavers. The aquatic rodents were fast, but the canine was faster. He swam back to Lewis, proudly clutching his prey. Seaman had no way of knowing it, but he had just sent a powerful message. He was worth far more than a few measly beaver pelts. Following Seaman's impressive hunting display, Meriwether Lewis must have felt like his loyal companion could do anything. On August 25th, he brought Seaman along for an overland trip to a site the local tribe called the Mountain of Spirits, somewhere along the Nebraska-Iowa border. Despite the overcast skies, the weather was hot and muggy. Not ideal conditions for Seaman. As the group struggled towards the Mountain of Spirits, the shaggy black dog fell farther and farther behind. He wasn't built for this sort of exercise. Lewis must have been sick with worry. Because of their proximity to the river, they hadn't packed sufficient water for their trek. They probably thought there would be plenty of streams to drink from. But several miles into their hike, there was no water to be seen. Things were looking bad for Seaman. He had come too far to turn back now. His panting tongue wasn't sufficiently regulating his body temperature. He needed hydration soon. Thankfully, four miles in, they came across a creek. Seaman flopped into the water. Lewis smiled as the Newfoundland drank his fill. Satisfied that his dog was safe, Lewis told Seaman to stay and set off with his men. A few minutes later, they heard something crashing through the brush. Whatever it was, it was big. Lewis tensed. Though he had recorded much of the local flora and fauna, there was still so much to discover. But the big black beast that emerged from the thicket was an all-too-familiar sight. Seaman. He refused to be left behind. In addition to being great swimmers, Newfoundlands are extremely loyal. They make for excellent companions and fierce protectors. If they sense their master is in danger, they'll do anything to protect them. But Seaman's love for Lewis wasn't unrequited. The explorer cared just as much as his canine. Two miles past the creek, it was evident the dog couldn't go on. After much cajoling, he convinced Seaman to return to the creek and wait for him. After Seaman's struggle on the trek to the Mountain of Spirits, he stuck close to shore for the next few months. 
By late October, the expedition had entered North Dakota. The timing was perfect. Temperatures were dropping, and it was time to make camp for the winter. The area's Mandan people were incredibly friendly and were happy to share their territory for the next few months. With temperatures reaching 45 degrees below zero, even seamen stayed indoors for most of the winter. But come the spring thaw, seamen was raring to get back on the river. The big day was April 8, 1805. Seaman was undoubtedly excited by the expedition's newest members, a 16-year-old Shoshone interpreter named Sacagawea and her infant son, nicknamed Pomp. As the core of discovery continued towards the Pacific, Sacagawea would provide valuable translation skills. And the presence of a woman and child in their party would indicate to new tribes that they weren't seeking war. The new additions also meant more mouths to feed. Just a few days into the spring journey, Seaman was back to retrieving game from the river. On April 18th, he grabbed a goose out of the water for everyone to eat. But even this freshly caught game wasn't enough to satisfy Seaman's appetite. Searching for food he didn't have to share, Seaman took to wandering away from the camp at night. With the weather still relatively cold, there wasn't much danger from predators threatening the men while they slept. But his long absences worried Lewis. As the morning of April 25th dawned, Seaman still hadn't returned. Lewis feared that he'd never return. He could never be sure what beasts and creatures Seaman might encounter in this unknown territory. But around 8 a.m., the big black Newfoundland wandered into camp, looking no worse for wear. It was a joyful reunion. In that day's journal entry, Lewis noted that Seaman's return was much to his satisfaction. Perhaps Seaman's growing independence helped him hone his skills as a hunter. On April 26th, he spotted a herd of pronghorns swimming through the river. Weighing anywhere between 90 to 150 pounds, they were formidable foes. But Seaman was up for the challenge. With his now customary leap from the boat's bow, Seaman swam in pursuit of the pronghorns. On land, they could have easily outrun him. But the water was Seaman's domain. Avoiding the pointy horns with ease, he claimed his latest trophy. Fresh from his successful pronghorn catch, Seaman must have felt invincible. He was a fearsome hunter, the master of the Missouri River. So on May 19th, when one of the expedition's members shot and wounded a beaver, Seaman took to the water without hesitation. Desperate to get away, the beaver dove underwater. But there was no escaping Seaman. He grabbed the beaver by the leg and turned back to the boat. But the beaver refused to give up. Contorting its body, it clamped down on one of Seaman's hind legs with its razor-sharp front teeth. In response, Seaman snapped the beaver's neck, killing it. He then carried on and swam back to Lewis as if nothing had happened. But when Seaman got out of the water, Lewis's face turned white. The dog's leg was bleeding. The beaver's bite had severed an artery. 
If Lewis didn't act fast, Seaman would bleed to death. First, Lewis tied a tourniquet above the wound. The bleeding slowed but didn't stop. Seaman was getting weaker by the moment. Lewis sent a crewman to get medical supplies while he applied pressure to the gash. He couldn't let Seaman go, not like this. After what seemed like an eternity, the crewman arrived with a needle and thread. Lewis deftly stitched the bite wound shut and the bleeding finally stopped. Now, all Lewis could do was wait and hope Seaman pulled through. It was a long night, but Lewis's decisive action had saved Seaman's life. Within a few days, the Newfoundland was back on his feet like nothing had happened. From then on, Seaman stayed close to Lewis at night. Perhaps it was because the weather was getting warmer and predators were numerous. Or maybe it was because Seaman felt closer to his master than ever. In any case, Seaman slept by Lewis's side the night of May 29, 1805. A little over a year after leaving St. Louis, the Corps of Discovery had reached Montana. The sentry on duty was keeping a close eye on the landscape for wayward grizzlies or hungry packs of wolves. But his attention was focused on the wrong place. Crossing from the opposite shore, a massive bison stampeded out of the river and ran headlong into the boat where Lewis and Seaman were sleeping. Catching man and dog alike by surprise, its hooves passed inches from their heads as it charged. But once Seaman was startled awake, he jumped into action. He chased after the bison as the camp erupted into chaos. Panicked from the sudden flurry of scrambling men, the bison stampeded through the camp in a confused rampage. Hoping to flee back to the river, it turned around and headed directly for Lewis's tent. Hot on its heels, Seaman managed to veer the bison off course, sending it away from his master. The snarling Newfoundland chased it back into the river. He stood sentinel on the shore, making sure the intruder didn't return. And though the expedition was safe for the moment, Seaman had many more nights of guard duty ahead of him. In late June of 1805, the expedition had to carry their gear 18 miles overland, since the river was too rapid to navigate. As they walked, they encountered the bodies of many unfortunate animals that had fallen into the water and drowned. While the meat provided easy meals for the hungry men, it also attracted the attention of the local predators. On two separate occasions in late June of 1805, seamen protected the camp from wandering grizzly bears. The Corps of Discovery had already had a few close brushes with these massive animals, who weren't shy to attack when they felt threatened. But thanks to seamen, the explorers could sleep well knowing he was protecting them. By August, the expedition had reached western Montana and the Louisiana Territory's border, but the journey was far from over. Jefferson had tasked Lewis with reaching the Pacific Ocean, and although there was no sign of the fabled Northwest Passage, finding a route to the Pacific would help the U.S. bolster its claim to the disputed Oregon Territory. 
Spain, Britain, and Russia had all explored the area, but the U.S. would have the best claim to the land if the country could show it had already begun the process of settling there. And the first step to settling was to accurately map it. So much was resting on Lewis and Clark's shoulders. Luckily, Seaman was there to share the burden. Coming up, the core of Discovery begins the most arduous leg of its journey. Now, back to the story. On August 12th, 1805, Meriwether Lewis and his dog Seaman straddled a mountain ridge in western Montana. He stood atop the Continental Divide. On one side, the water flowed east towards the Gulf of Mexico. On the other, west to the Pacific Ocean. But getting there wasn't as simple as following the snowmelt all the way to its terminus. To get to a point where the river was navigable, the core of Discovery would have to travel the rugged expanse of the Rocky Mountains. The area's Native American people were the Shoshone, the same tribe Sacagawea belonged to. With her help, Lewis and Clark were able to acquire the horses they needed for this challenging leg of the journey. But they didn't have to worry about seamen. Newfoundlands were bred to withstand the freezing winters of their Canadian homeland. He was just as comfortable in the snow as he was in the water. As was now becoming customary, the Shoshone were fascinated by seamen. But it wasn't just the big black Newfoundlands look that impressed them. They were in awe of what Lewis called the sagacity of my dog. Yes, Seaman was big and burly, but what made him truly special was his mind. He was a keen hunter, a fierce protector, and a gentle companion. Whatever the occasion called for, he could do it. And in the months ahead, he'd have to use every bit of that intellect to help his friends survive. The trek through the Rocky Mountains was full of peril. Even though it was only September, snow was already dusting the narrow passes. Game was scarce, and even Seaman's keen hunting skills were insufficient to catch food. Faced with no other choice, the explorers had to kill their own horses for sustenance. By September 18th, they were almost completely out of rations. With time running out, Clark went ahead of the main party in search of food. Thankfully, he encountered a group of Nez Perce people who gave him dried salmon and edible roots. Aided by this sustenance, the core of Discovery survived the next few weeks. On October 7th, they were back in the water, canoeing down the Clearwater River. Propelled by the current, the expedition was able to cover nearly 60 miles a day six times what they could manage when they were struggling against the Missouri River's current. By October 10th, they had already reached the Snake River, on the border of modern-day Idaho and Washington State. However, moving this fast created several challenges. When they were meandering up the Missouri, seamen and the other members of the crew were able to hunt along the riverbanks without losing sight of the boats. But now, they had to stay in the canoes. With winter rapidly approaching, the expedition 
didn't have time to stop and wait for a hunting party to replenish their stores. To get enough food, they had to rely on trade with Native American villagers they encountered along the way. However, the Native Americans were short on provisions as well. By this time of year, they were mostly relying on their stores of dried fish. The only fresh meat they could provide was from dogs. Over the next few weeks, the men would kill dozens of dogs for food. Thankfully, Seaman wasn't among them. There's no indication of why he survived this grisly fate, but he had already proven his worth to the Corps of Discovery ten times over. He wasn't just an animal. He was part of the crew. On November 7th, 1805, nearly a year and a half since they left St. Louis, Seaman's ears pricked up. He was hearing a new, unfamiliar sound. It was the ocean's waves breaking on the rocky shoreline. They had done it. They were in a massive bay of the Pacific Ocean. The men shouted in glee as they gazed across the endless expanse. To commemorate the occasion, Clark wrote, Ocean in view, oh the joy. However, there wasn't much time to celebrate. The Pacific Northwest winter was going to be long and wet. There was much work to do if Lewis and Clark were going to live long enough to relay the discovery to President Jefferson. Although it wasn't as bitterly cold as their last two winters, the stay in what Lewis and Clark dubbed Fort Clatsop, after the local Native Americans, had its share of difficulties. Although the Clatsop were eager to help the Corps of Discovery, the nearby Chinook people were far less accommodating. In the past, they had encountered European traders along the Pacific coast, and it didn't seem to have gone particularly well. Although the majority of the Chinook people were happy to barter with Lewis and Clark, some of them preferred to steal from the explorers instead. When the weather finally warmed in early April of 1806, the Corps of Discovery was glad to begin its journey home. But from the outset of the return journey, it was clear the trip wouldn't be easy. Fighting against the current once again, progress was slow. While seamen played along the wooded shoreline, the men labored with every paddle stroke. By the time they beached their canoes on the northern border of modern-day Oregon on the evening of April 11th, they were exhausted. They were so tired, they didn't pay much attention to the fact that seamen was nowhere to be found. As they stretched their tired limbs in the fading light, a Clatsop man burst into their camp. He had urgent news. Members of a nearby tribe had kidnapped seamen. Meriwether Lewis leaped into action. He gathered some men and pursued the thieves. As he raced through the unfamiliar wooded landscape, Lewis reflected on everything he and seamen had been through in the last few years. Over many long months and thousands of miles, the loyal Newfoundland had saved the explorers' lives so many times. Now, it was time for them 
to return the favor. After a determined chase through the dense woods, Lewis and his men cornered the thieves in a forest clearing. Seaman strained against the rope he was tied to, desperate to reunite with his master. Three captors held him tight. Seaman struggled, almost yanked them off their feet, but they managed to hold on. Though Seaman and Lewis were only a few feet apart, they may as well have been separated by the Pacific Ocean itself. If Lewis didn't play this moment carefully, he could lose Seaman forever. Throughout the expedition, Lewis had urged his men to refrain from harming any Native American they encountered. But now, his orders were clear. If the thieves refused to return Seaman, the explorers were to fire at will. When the Native Americans saw the firepower they were up against, they released Seaman and ran away. Freed from his bonds, the big Newfoundland jumped all over his master, covering Lewis in slobbery kisses. Lewis resolved to never let Seaman wander away again. Though the rest of the journey was difficult, nobody tried to steal Seaman again. By early July, they had crossed back over the Continental Divide. It was all downhill from there, so to speak. On July 5th, the expedition crossed a 20-yard stream that flowed into what is now called the Clark Fork River. When it came time to name this tributary, Lewis decided it was high time to honor one of the expedition's most valuable members. He dubbed it Seaman's Creek. But although they were entering more familiar territory, this part of the journey still had its dangers. On July 7th, a member of the party shot and wounded a bull moose. It was up to Seaman to finish the job. But the big dog hesitated. Throughout the expedition, he had taken down deer and pronghorn with ease. But this giant ungulate was another matter altogether. Perhaps thinking back to his near-fatal encounter with the beaver a year earlier, Seaman decided not to get involved. As Lewis put in his journal, the moose made his dog much worried. Moose weren't the only threat Seaman had to watch out for. He had to also be on alert for his old nemeses, grizzly bears. On July 15th, one of the men barely escaped a face-off with a grizzly when he clambered up a willow tree. Luckily, the bear decided not to go after him. That same day, Lewis wrote about another, albeit smaller, menace. Mosquitoes. There were so many of the little pests that Lewis wrote how they flew down his throat when he breathed. Even seamen, whose thick fur normally protected him, couldn't escape their wrath. In his journal entry from July 15th, Lewis wrote, My dog even howls with the torture he experiences from them. Aside from the interesting anecdotes, Lewis's July 15, 1806 journal entry was particularly notable because it was the last time Seaman was mentioned. The expedition arrived in St. Louis on September 23rd, but there was no way to know if the loyal Newfoundland was with them. The day after Lewis's final entry about Seaman, 
he and three other men set off on horseback to explore another river. Along the way, they encountered a group of Blackfoot people and had to flee with haste. If Seaman was with them, he would have been lost forever. If so, Seaman would have been the only member of the Corps of Discovery to lose his life. Every single man who set off towards the Pacific made it safely home. As thanks for their incredible efforts, President Jefferson gave each one a large payment and 320 acres of land. The expedition's leaders, Lewis and Clark, received even larger rewards. As the man who probably knew the land best, Lewis was appointed as governor of the sprawling Louisiana Territory. But governing, while also trying to compile his journals for publication, was too much for Meriwether Lewis. He lost all the money he had in bad land deals and struggled with alcoholism. On October 11, 1809, one of the greatest explorers in American history died by suicide. It was a tragic end to an incredible life but a discovery five years later showed that at least his final years weren't spent alone. In 1814, historian Timothy Alden visited a museum in Alexandria, Virginia, to collect material for his book, a collection of Americans' epitaphs and inscriptions with occasional notes. This museum was of particular interest to Alden because William Clark had donated several items from the expedition to the Pacific. Amongst the various curiosities, Alden found a dog collar with the following inscription. The greatest traveler of my species, my name is Seaman, the dog of Captain Meriwether Lewis, whom I accompanied to the Pacific Ocean through the interior of the continent of North America. Seaman had made it safely after all. If he had been lost in the flight from the Blackfeet, Lewis wouldn't have been able to retrieve his collar. Although the collar was lost in an 1871 fire, Alden's notes on it confirm Seaman's survival. He wrote, the fidelity and attachment of this animal were remarkable. After the melancholy exit of Governor Lewis, his dog would not depart for a moment from his lifeless remains. And when they were deposited in the earth, no gentle means could draw him from the spot of interment. He refused to take every kind of food and died with grief upon his master's grave. Seaman had followed his master over 8,000 miles from Pittsburgh to the Pacific and back. In the end, he couldn't abandon Lewis in this final journey either. He was loyal to the last. Thanks for listening to Dog Tales. Every dog has his day, and our day is Mondays. We'll be back then with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Dog Tales and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Dog Tales for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
To stream Dogtales on Spotify, just open the app and type Dogtales in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week for another good story about a good dog. Dogtales was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Dogtales was written by Alex Benedon, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>